Thank you for downloading and happiness. Dare to be happy. We are two curious friends that want to explore what makes us happy. In each episode, we will take a topic in alphabetical order and discuss how it relates to and impacts happiness. We'll live the experience of each concept through a dare that we set each other and then talk about how it affected our happiness. As well as diving into psychological theories and evidence which supports or contradicts our personal experiences. In other words, in this show, psychology meets play. I'm Kitty Newman, director of Trapeze Media, a digital marketing agency that leads with social. My company philosophy is based on the importance of play in all our lives and how important it is to be happy at work. I have been obsessed with the circus for a few years, hence the name Trapeze Media, and making time for things like handstands and aerial in amongst the day-to-day challenges that come with running a successful business makes me happy. My name is Claudia Mitura. I'm a work psychologist and learning and development specialist with a purpose to boost happiness in the workplace. I love experimenting and applying scientific research on happiness to my daily ups and downs, or just to prove my other half wrong. I also like to look for happiness in unusual places, so I won't shy away from diving with sharks or starring in a pantomime. Sometimes this gets me in trouble. Hi, Claudia. Hi, Kitty. Episode 14 of And Happiness. I was sceptical of this topic at first, but we are talking numbers and happiness. I know, very unusual topic, but we have a fantastic guest today with us, Nick Marks, who is a founder and CEO of Friday Pulse. He's one of the UK's leading happiness experts and statisticians. So exciting. In 2010, Nick gave a TED Talk, which has been now watched over 2 million times. Watch it. Very interesting. And he's been advising UK government on measuring well-being, as well as working with Kingdom on Bhutan on gross national happiness measures. I think we can learn a lot from Nick around how to measure and improve happiness, especially that Friday Pulse is an organization that looks at measuring and improving happiness at work, at the team and organizational level. So, so exciting. I just can't wait. Wait. Wow. Well, let's get into it. Let's listen to numbers and happiness. Yay. Okay, so Nick, welcome to our show and thank you so much for agreeing to talk to us about very unusual topic, numbers and happiness. That's fine, thank you. That is my speciality, numbers and happiness. I was intrigued when Claudia suggested that we do numbers. How are we going to make numbers associate with happiness? Well, I think some people like feel it's sort of just plain wrong to put numbers on happiness that, you know, basically, you know, you're somehow diminishing the idea if you start trying to create measures of happiness. But I would argue that actually opens the door to better conversations. And actually numbers are often a language that are used, particularly in the realms that I've worked in, which is public policy and then business. So if you don't have numbers, people don't take you seriously. So in many ways, it's a strategy for getting things that I think should be taken seriously, seriously, whether that's quality of life, well-being or happiness. And that's my contribution. I'm a statistician who, you know, is interested in this area. So I use the skills I have to promote the area. 
Lovely. And, you know, our dare was this week to measure our happiness. So every day in the morning and in the evening, we would send each other a message around how do we feel from one to five. So very simple scale, very much affected by our momentary swings in mood, but very interesting still. We had lots of kind of discoveries about how we feel on daily basis, but I was just wondering, how do you measure happiness? Well, in a very similar way, really, we ask people, we ask people in structured surveys, and there are different ways of doing it. Some people like to create a very in-depth round, what they would call a rounded measure, which has got sort of maybe 12 items with 12 questions in it, and they create a score. I actually am quite a fan of what you do, which is to say, let's just do a snapshot. Very, very simple. And I also use a one to five scale. There's a lot of debate in, it's called psychometrics, basically the way that you create numbers around psychological constructs about what length of scale you should use. I'm a big fan of an odd number of items. So five or seven or most simple three or 11. 11 is a naught to 10 scale because the naught and the 10 are both in there. But I'm not very keen on the naught to 10 scale because people start to get confused confused what's a seven, what's an eight, and they don't use the bottom of the scale anyway very much. There's not much differentiation between one, two, three, four. So five is about right. I say one is very unhappy, two is unhappy, three is okay, four is happy, five is very happy. And that's about as much as we can gradiate these things. And you're basically putting on a number on something which is a felt experience. But when you're doing that, it's very important you have an idea of both the bottom and the top of the scale, what the anchors is what we call them. And with happiness, you can do that. So how are you feeling today, Nick, from one to five? Well, it's still a little bit early in the morning for me. I'm not a morning creature, so I'm probably only a three and a half, four at the moment. <laughs> <laughs> I have had a cup of coffee and I'm cheering up now because I'm talking with people. So that's good. I'm edging up to a four at the moment. Brilliant. Because you know what? I always thought that I'm a kind of morning person because I always feel like my creativity is flowing in the morning. But through this there, I actually realized that I'm quite miserable in the morning. Looking at my rating, I was always around two or three. And usually it was, oh, I don't feel well. Oh, weather is not good enough. You know, that kind of justification. And then the score was going when I was warming up. So yeah, I definitely changed my perception around that. I'm not a morning person. <laughs> Well, I mean, transitory mood, which is basically what you're measuring there, we definitely move up and down. And in many ways, one could argue is that the most important thing to measure is the ebb and flow of things. I tend to be more interested in not the more stable parts, but the larger parts of, of happiness. So there's three basic ways. In fact, there's four actually, but the three main ways that measure subjective happiness. One is that we do exactly what you're doing, which is experience sampling, which is we ask people in the moment how they're feeling. The other one at the other end is what's called evaluative measures, where you ask people, how happy are you overall? rule and you're basically asking for a cognitive judgment about reflection on how your whole life's going. And then in between that is what's called episodal measurement, which is you basically take a period. So you say something like, how happy were you today? How happy were you this week? It's a question I'm very interested in my work about work. We ask people you know, how happy were you at work this week? It's a good episode. But, you know, it could be smaller than that. It could be if you go to a movie, how much did you enjoy it? It's basically picking into that signal, was it good or bad, and a reflection at the end of it. The fourth way you can do it is by observation. 
which is that other people judge or, you know, what you now get is bits of AI that troll through your emails or social media stuff and say how many positive and negative words you're doing. That is a measure, but it's not one I'm very keen on. Wow. Oh, I don't like the idea of somebody else judging how happy I am. I'm not sure why. It would be a bit of AI these days. but um, Yeah. Well, sometimes we're not always the best judge of our own happiness. In fact, actually, I think we all know people who we consider to be somewhat delusional about their own experience, you know, that they overrate themselves but you know it is their own perception of it and there is a sort of interception between our level of awareness about ourselves and how much we reflect on ourselves and how we rate ourselves so you know there's a complexity to it and I think in one way it shows us that we should use this as an indicator rather than a precise measure it's helping us understand things it's helping us have better conversations maybe helping us make better decisions but it's not like I'm one meter 72 high it's a different type of measure. Mm-hmm. Kitty, what have you discovered? Do you have any reflections around your ratings? Well, Nick, when you said about how you were feeling this morning, but now you're talking to people, I didn't realise how much other people affected my mood. So I could wake up and feel a certain way. And as soon as I went out and started engaging with other people, that really lifted me without much else changing, really. Yeah, Daniel Kahneman, the Nobel Prize winner, will say that happiness is almost a social emotion, that it is between us as much as it is within us. And people will have debates about this. I'll say to people sometimes, they go, oh no, no, you know, my happiness is, you know, being alone on top of a mountain. And that's fine. And in a way, people use the word happiness in quite different ways. People will say happiness is contentment. Other people will say it's joy. Well, contentment and joy are pretty different emotions. You know, one's a very high energy one and exuberant. The other one's quite reflective and low energy. And of course, the thing is that we use the word really as a sort of gateway word to a whole array of positive emotions and how they are. But the more energetic happiness, positive emotions tend to be with other people, not exclusively. So you can get into quite a focused energy, positive emotion like interest, which is normally on your own in a sort of flow state is what Csikszentmihalyi will call it, you know, that we basically get into a period where we lose track of time. And that is a high energy, focused energy on our own. But, you know, something like joy, enthusiasm, exuberance, you know, these things tend to happen with other people. Because it, happiness is so vast, obviously quite a lot of research when looking at the data is concentrating or putting some models and some structure around happiness. And I know you've been researching happiness for like 25 years. Are you proposing any specific drivers behind happiness, especially in the workplace? Uh, Yeah, of course, you have to make your own model. That's the game, isn't it? (laughs) But one of the things to say about a model is let's firstly define what the structure of that model is. And so the first thing I would say is I think of happiness as an outcome. When you're thinking in these terms, happiness drives other good experiences, other outcomes. But in the terms of like what creates happiness, let's be very clear and define happiness as an outcome, which is why I like a very pure measure of happiness, like how happy were you this week? It's got a boundary, it's got a scale to it. And then you look at what influences that. In the workplace, we look at that in terms of team culture, team morale, the behaviors that happen at a team or organizational level. And we talk about there being five big drivers. Our five things are connect which is that relationships are the foundations of happiness at work and, and elsewhere. Second one is be fair, which is that if systems are respectful, that you feel appreciated, that your home life is respected too, you're paid fairly. The third one is empower, you're feeling a sense of autonomy, being able to be yourself, using your strengths. The fourth is to challenge, which is that we like stretch, we like learning. 
and the fifth is to inspire, which is actually being connected to things beyond us. So those are the five things we talk about, connect, be fair, empower, challenge, inspire. We call them the five ways to happiness at work. Fascinating. When people look at this model, do they maybe get drawn to one specific element? Because I'm just thinking straight away like, oh, autonomy is quite important to me, this empowerment aspect, and definitely the challenge aspect to be kind of challenged and develop the skills. So I don't know whether one is more important to some people or is it flat in importance and relevance? I can't give you a strong statistical answer to that. I haven't looked at personality and the relationship towards it. It wouldn't surprise me if empowering challenger was speaking to you, you must be a very growth orientated person. And so those are the ones that you most think. And if you were someone that was exceptionally sociable, might be the connect that is for you. If you were someone that was very meaning led, it will be the inspire for you. So, you know, what we generally find is that, you know, when people move jobs, for example, they can tend to identify which one isn't being addressed in their current role. And so they would tend to look for that in their next role. But of course, what they might forget is to protect the ones that they also look after. So if you swap out of a corporate world into a not-for-profit because Inspire has been missing, don't forget Connect or don't forget Challenge, whatever it is. You know, It's a rich systemic space where they all interconnect. I would say look after all of them. Kitty, any specific one that stands out for you? Definitely connecting with people. When you were listing those, I could understand exactly where those fit. I can see that when you set the challenge, people are inspired to do more and they enjoy doing what they're doing. And actually, if I set people targets, I don't want to kind of belittle the target, but it's not like if you don't hit this target, you're going to get in trouble. This is to kind of give us some fun and competition rather than, oh, you haven't hit this target, you're going to get sacked. <laughs> yeah, it's a sort of stretch target, isn't it? Challenge is very obvious that it's an optimization issue in the sense if you set two strong targets, people get stressed and they basically you know feel they can't cope, they can't meet it. And if you don't set them enough, they're really bored. Whereas in the middle, you're just being pulled a little bit further than you think you want to be. And then actually, that is where the space that's really creative and really inspiring is. So it becomes an optimization issue. We're looking for optimal levels rather than maximum levels. And that actually also applies to happiness at work in the sense that if everybody was happy all the time in your organization, probably wouldn't be as productive as you could be. In a sense that there are always setbacks, there are always challenges, there are always curveballs that come and hit things. And so you want people to be reactive. And in the sense that, you know, someone said, I'm not going to get this exactly right, but you know, discomfort is the mother of creativity. You know, the little bit of discontent, discomfort actually helps us improve it. So you're striking a balance here where you want teams to be generally happy, but, you know, clearly they're going to have setbacks. And actually, resilience is how quickly you recover from a setback. You see it in our data as a curve through time, you know, in that basically you're going along and then there's a dip and then how quickly do you come back? And if you don't come back quickly, that's not resilience. If you come back quickly, that's resilience. I really love that, actually. And I think that you have to look at each part within that setup. So if you look at the team, like if you've got the manager who's looking after the person who's being pushed, and if the person who's being pushed is out of their comfort zone, it's sort of the job of the manager to give them the confidence and security to sit within that discomfort, to push themselves to, to go far. But if you've got a manager that's not supporting you during a time when you're pushing yourself out of your comfort zone, then you might have a really awful time and feel very insecure. But actually, if you're pushing yourself out of your comfort zone to try something new and you have the support around you, then I see how that's uplifting and stressful, but not demoralizing and destructive. <laughs> 
Yeah, there's actually this fundamental tension, which I would say is, I'm going to go really grand here and go, this is all the way through evolution. This is all the way through all living organisms. But there is this sort of need for stability and a need for change. And that is in every cell is like it has to maintain its structure. That takes energy. There's a maintenance issue. But then there is the fact it needs to reproduce, to grow. That is the growth part of it. We talk about it in common language as surviving and thriving. In emotional psychology, we talk about it as the difference between negative and positive emotions. Negative emotions are not negative as in dysfunctional, they're negative as in they're dealing with threats. So things like anger and fear, part of the fight and flight mechanism, they are helping us maintain stability. Something is threatening us, threatening our well-being. Anger is often about overstepping a norm, so it's about social norm. So we're basically trying to maintain a structure of our community or whatever it is. Whereas emotions like curiosity, inspiration, about finding new spaces and human beings need to be innovative and creative. You know, we've always had to find the next thing to hunt, the next person that we want to be friends with, you know, and you get these approach avoid signals all the time. And I think that's the same in work. You want the stability and you want the development. And of course, those get in conflict sometimes. When we are in the workplace or also kind of in personal life, how can we assess our own happiness? So you can do it as you two have been doing, which is you sort of buddy up with people and you ask each other regularly and whether that is daily would tend to be too much for most people. They tend to get bored and skip some too much. Yeah, But, you know, if you're enthusiastic, but, you know, I think weekly is quite a good spot because we work in weekly sprints and we do that. Actually, we check out people. How are you doing? You do tend to have to ask people twice because if you go, how are you doing? People go fine. And then you go, how are you really doing? Then you might get some of the stuff, you know, because you have to ask again to get there. With Friday Pulse, as you say, we ask teams structurally on a Friday. That's why we call Friday Pulse. How was your week? On Monday, we feed all that data back for them to have a reflective conversation. We're just developing and actually we'll be out by the time that this podcast is released, a checkup for individuals calling Friday One. And there'll definitely be a link from our website, fridaypulse.com. Probably put it at the show notes. And there'll probably be a direct link at fridayone.com. So you can go there and that will ask you 15 questions about the five ways, connect, be fair, empower, challenge, inspire, with the idea that you can self-diagnose what's going on in your role, what's good, what isn't, how do you compare to the UK average, and you can see how you're doing. And that is really a reflective tool. I am a statistician, but when I was young, I also trained as a therapist. And basically, I really respect the idea that actually coming into awareness and the reflective process is about how change starts. And so I try and create the tools that act like a mirror and that they help you see where you are because that's where I think change can happen. Once I complete these 15 questions, it will give me lots of insights to reflect. How can I use that knowledge to boost my happiness in the workplace? What can I do? So we give you a report and that's got tips in it. It's got reflective questions for you to think about. People could take it to their line manager if they trust their line manager. They want to talk about it. This feels like these are my growth points. If your line manager isn't a trusted source, take it to a friend. Some people will be using it because they want to change roles. Some will be thinking about how can they improve the role they're in at the moment. A reflective process requires effort. It's effortful to change. It's not like magical. And the way that you change is by trying new things. It's a question of looking at your results and thinking how it speaks to you. It is a mirror. You look in the mirror and you decide you want to rearrange your hair or you don't. <laughs> we look in the mirror to change things. Some of it is about maintenance. Some of it is about radical change. And there are moments when you're ready for radical change in life, you know, and actually we tend to feel the building up for quite a while before we get into the space where actually, okay, we need to make a step change here. And often it's just about maintaining where we are and that's all good. 
I think people will approach it differently, won't they? I've realised doing this podcast with Claudia, I've been told so many times to do these things, you know, do gratitudes and boundaries, all these things. I've known I should, but I'm like, I guess so, half-heartedly. But actually, I'm realising how much I can change my approach by doing very little things throughout the day that make me happier. And actually, the scoring system made it clearer to me exactly what it was that was making me happy in the day so I didn't realize how much of an impact exercise had because Claudia put our scores into a spreadsheet and did a summary good on you Claudia yeah I love a good spreadsheet (laughs) (laughs) and it said you felt bad when you woke up and anxious about work but then you did some exercise and felt better you were feeling awkward about certain interaction but then actually went and spoke to somebody else and then felt better and it was just laying out exactly my own personal processes has been really useful to know what makes me happier And actually seeing that it is true that these things have made me happier. It's not just anecdotal, but putting it into a numbers and a spreadsheet, it's become fact. That's the power of numbers, you see. There's a sort of brutality to them, but there's a clarity to them. We shouldn't let our moods drive us all the time. We need to actually cognitively interact with our emotions and make good choices. And I'm not saying that's easy. I recognize all of the things you say, particularly for me around exercise and diet. I'm not the person who does that very well. I know I should do, but you know, I kind of have to be kicked to go and do that sort of stuff. But it is about learning and it's about deciding and taking our own happiness seriously. I think a lot of people don't take their own happiness seriously. So taking it seriously means being mindful about it and also acting on stuff. And I think that within that, numbers have a role to play. So that's my little contribution to the space. Are you measuring your happiness on a daily basis? Well, I measure it with Friday Pulse with my team, so I'm aware of it in that way. So my wife and I will often talk about how we're feeling and what's going on. I'm not very good at noticing stress building up. I'm someone that's pretty resilient, so I kind of just power through. And, you know, with COVID and lockdown and, you know, running a business and pivoting a business and all those other sort of things going on and not really having the normal release bulbs you do you know, I certainly got a bit stressed and it caught up with me and rather surprised me. And actually, one of the things I've done very seriously about that is actually I started to take Fridays off through July and August. I thought I needed an extra day off. And actually, I've now moved my whole organization to a four-day week because I think we're all stressed. And I think actually there's a lot of evidence that shows that productivity is improved by shorter working weeks. And so we've been planning how we all work in four days instead of five days, how everyone gets a three-day weekend. It's obviously very popular. I mean, everyone loves it. But also, we have to find more respectful ways to work so that we respect each other's boundaries as we move to that. It's a very practical thing you can do as a CEO. There's something where you really lock in a huge cultural change, you know. I mean, I'm very into this idea we need to get into people's weeks, into their daily lives. You know, we can't leave happiness to a once a year measurement. We can't leave it to a once a quarter party. It needs to be in every day of work. It needs to be in that space. And to be taken seriously, it needs to be acted on. So in a sense, I've taken my own happiness seriously by thinking about what do I need? And then actually thought, well, actually, maybe everyone needs it. Talk to everybody, worked out a plan, and we're all moving forward that way. So, you know, it does require change. It does require change if you're going to take these things seriously. First of all, amazing, Nick. Wow, four-day week, amazing. But then there'll be lots of skeptical people around this idea, but generally also maybe about idea of happiness in the workplace. What kind of arguments would you present to CEO and businesses why they should measure happiness, as you said, weekly, daily, rather than once a year party? 
So there's a straightforward business case, which numbers really help with. So as I said, we measure weekly happiness on a one to five scale. And if a team on average moves half a point up that scale, I can show you that is associated with 17% less staff turnover in the next quarter. Nice. So you get better staff retention. I can show you evidence that shows that it leads to about a 7% increase in productivity. And that does depend an awful lot. If you're in manufacturing, it's lower. If you are in a creative industries or a very collaborative workspace, it's probably 20, 25% for that half point. So these are huge improvements in productivity if you get people's happiness right. So there's those business cases. And you can even show that companies with better cultures tend to have higher share price growth, about 2 to 3% extra a year. So every way it's aligned with the bottom line. But of course, there's still skeptics. And why do they do that? They sort of go, oh, well, if you're happy, you're not working. <laughs> You know, sort of thing. And let's accept there's a truth to that. If you're in a certain type of happiness, which is that very jolly laughter enjoyment, then, you know, you're not using your full cognitive capacities at that time. Why is that? Well, from an evolutionary perspective, at that moment, your energy is to bond with other people. It doesn't pay to be your brightest, most intelligent, most challenging self in there. You're fitting in. You're trying to belong. You're trying to bond with people. Now, you need that energy in a team. You need to bond with other people in a team. So that's got a percentage of your work should be about that, but it's only 10% probably. Whereas what you want is the happiness that comes from interest, from curiosity, from enthusiasm, from reflection, actually, and, you know, and contentment in the sense of actually looking back and seeing what you've done well. So you want to basically access all of the positive emotions. You want to be emotionally agile through those. There's times of the day when you just want to get off Zoom, get off Slack, get off email, and just focus for two hours and just do whatever it is you're doing. That's a joy in that, but it's not a social joy. It's not a laughing joy, but it's a different type of happiness. So you basically want to access that whole array. And that's what I will say. And then most people lead teams, they get that actually what they want is what they would call engagement, except no one really knows what that means. But <laughs> but it's actually you want people who are present, who are working. But you need to understand that people that can only concentrate for about 45, 50 minutes an hour. Myself, I'm about 25 minutes before my mind starts going somewhere. <laughs> you know, it, working six hours a day is probably great. If you're a consultancy and you're selling time, who wants to buy your Friday time when you're knackered from four days? Buy your Monday to Thursday time sell it at a higher rate and then have Fridays off. You know, you'll have more energy, you'll do better for your clients. So I think it's just about reimagining what we mean by productivity, what we mean by selling our time, what we mean by engagement. Love it. Love it. Any final thoughts around happiness and numbers, Nick? I don't know why, and this is a ridiculous thing, but I've got that Beyonce song. If you want to put a ring on it, I think if you want to take it seriously, put a number on it. And uh, that's exactly it. I think that numbers have a place and they're not the enemy of happiness. But let's be serious. There's an old Chinese saying, which is that the finger that points to the moon is not the moon. The numbers are fingers pointing to the moon of happiness, okay? And they're helping us see where it is, but, you know, not the whole experience of it. But it's very, very helpful in that reflective space. Like you two have said, by putting a number on it, it helps you learn. And in the end, it's a learning game, isn't it? We move forward, we learn, we hopefully mature and develop, and we hopefully enjoy our work more, we become better colleagues, we do better at work. They're all aligned. It's about being happy and productive at work. It's not doing either or. Brilliant. Thank you. Amazing. <laughs> Thanks, Nick. <laughs> Thank you. That made numbers relate to happiness. How exciting. Oh, I loved it. <laughs> I saw your eyes light up. It was amazing. For both of us, this episode really strengthened that numbers can be such an informative tool for us to understand what makes us happy, when we are at our best, and why certain things make us happy. As Mlik was saying, it's like a mirror that helps us 
to really understand our happiness. And we can think whether we are great and we need to be maintaining it or we want to make certain changes. Yeah, so Nick's business, Friday Pulse, is really great for businesses. If you are in a team and you think that this is going to be something valuable for your company, direct your managers and line managers and CEOs to Friday Pulse. You can get a free three-month trial and that's for teams of 50 to 1,000. And then there's also Friday One for individuals. And we're really interested to see that. I'll be the first one answering those 15 questions. Cannot wait. So next week, we are talking about the letter O, the most exciting, most explosive, colourful, sparkly, bombastic topic of ordinary. (laughs) Oh my God, for a second there with your intro, I thought you've changed the topic without letting me know. (laughs) Nice one. So we're going to be celebrating the ordinary things in life. We'll make a note of the ordinary day-to-day activities that bring us joy but we're also going to ask our friends and family to send us voice notes of anything ordinary they do in their life that brings them joy lovely so really kitty i'm looking forward to very ordinary week yeah oh an ordinary week claudia oh absolutely delicious (laughs) so if you've not subscribed please subscribe recommend this episode or any of the episodes you've enjoyed to a friend we're loving hearing how much happiness these dares are bringing people but most of all we dare you to be happy have a fantastic week bye-bye bye